0: There's not going to be a silver bullet. There's not going to be a technology that makes this all go away because we know that this isn't technical. This is social. This is political. Uh, these are dynamics that we create together. Hello and welcome
1: to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson. The rising cost of textbooks is a familiar story. It's not uncommon to stumble upon headlines about students spending hundreds or thousands of dollars for their course materials. Open Educational Materials, or OER, were one response to increasing concerns about how expensive textbooks are getting and how these steep prices disproportionately affect low-income students. OER have been around for more than a decade now, and the sheer number of these materials available has rapidly increased over the years. But as more open materials have become available, advocates for open education see some gaps in the effort and room for improvement. At the start of this episode, you heard from Jess Mitchell, a senior manager of research and design at the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Recently, Mitchell keynoted a national conference on open education, and we caught up afterwards to dig a bit more into some of the big themes around why she and other speakers at the event believe free learning materials can help students cut down on college costs, but that's not always enough to really improve access. So here's Mitchell again.
0: So I think that open education resources uh, for many years have been focused on uh, textbook uh, costs, and those are not to be diminished. Those are prohibitive. That is one way to really create a barrier for access for, for learners. And in many ways, it doubly marginalized the marginalized students, right? The students who are maybe low income and coming into school. Now they have additional costs that are above and beyond what the tuition cost was. Uh, So those are very significant issues. I think that what open education is though saying is yes. And so yes, the economic issues and the availability of access to materials is a problem. Yes. And it's also a problem the way the materials are presented, right? So the format that they're in, the, what kind of mode they're in. Again, is it text? Is it audio? Is it video? Is it you know, done in some didactic way? Is it done in a kind of an experiential way? And this is where I think some really interesting work is happening around uh, critical digital pedagogy and thinking about everything.
1: Kit McGuire is the Program Director of Education at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, which has provided grant support and other investments to the creation of various open educational resources. He shares some similar opinions with Mitchell about that yes and idea.
2: Yes, bringing the cost of materials down is a big deal. But if we can get all the way to there are ways we can improve and enhance teaching. Uh, There are ways we can engage Uh, new groups of students, content and perspectives that we can get at more clearly and really do more to involve students in all of this so that they have a sense of agency, right, and ownership uh, of the contents and the problems they're working. We can get there. Then I think the sky is the limit, in terms of the impacts we can we can have. So that's what really uh, excites me.
1: Mitchell and McGuire have thoughts about what the open education movement must do next in order to get these free materials in the hands of students and also to address some of the larger barriers beyond textbook costs that can hold students back. McGuire's team is actually researching some of those challenges to actually using OER. Here he explains.
2: Institutions... Um, who have um, so little bandwidth at the margin, not all, but many, uh, that the kinds of things that are being discussed at this conference, um, uh, interesting um, though they may be, uh, I think are hard for many of these institutions to, uh, to access. That is actually uh, work that um, at Hewlett, I am looking into trying to understand more clearly what are the barriers to participation. Are there supports uh, and structures we could bring to uh, minority-serving institutions that might help them take fuller advantage of it?
1: Is there, um, like what has that research shown you so far? What are you, what are you seeing as you're looking into that?
2: You know, we're still waiting For something that you might call a final report, but I'm pretty sure what we're going to hear are a few things. One, that awareness levels vary widely, that the faculty, uh, neither the faculty nor the institutions are well represented in the community called OER. Two, that Uh, There'll be uh, real appreciation for the potential benefits along the lines that I have just described, but with teaching loads, with administrative duties tacked on top, their ability to take on almost anything new, especially if um, that will also require time and energy to adopt and adapt, those things press against broader use, Um, and that, three, the kind of infrastructure at the institutional level is thin and weak, and many of the faculty might not benefit from the kind of institutional support they would need or want in order to make effective use. So I think these are some multiple uh, challenges, but they are challenges nonetheless
1: then there are technological barriers like access to internet, which is a pretty uneven issue.
2: I think it's a big issue. It depends on who you're talking about and where you are. Uh, If you were talking about, uh, let's say, traditional students, the extent to which we have any of them left, who are supported by... Stable families, then some of the sort of digital divide or access kinds of issues. Uh, they're probably there, but maybe at the margin. Um, when I alluded to the kind of stratification that exists in higher ed by race and income, I'm really talking about the non traditional student who I will assert is increasingly the norm, um, there, any pressure at the margin is real and is uh, felt. So uh, we should worry a lot uh, about the extent to which the assumptions we're making about what different student populations can bear, you know, that's a problem... Open pedagogy uh, open education resources could be a more potent resource. Because I just want you to think for a minute about going into um, the penal system or into the um, uh, system where um, uh, adjudicated youth uh, having been pushed out of traditional high schools are and just how big a dividend there would be from bringing open pedagogy and resources into those settings.
1: Mitchell goes one step further, pointing out that effective teaching takes this into account.
0: So we know, for instance, that the way that the room is set up has an impact on the way that um, conversations and dialogue and sharing happens. So if we know that to be the case, uh, then, then thinking about the way the classroom is structured should be a part of education, should be a part of what we're talking about. If openness is what we're aiming for and open education means saying we're not comfortable with leaving anybody behind, we want to educate everyone. So if, if we acknowledge that those are creating barriers and that we can improve outcomes with some of these other approaches, then we need to dive into those as well. We need to think about the context that we're teaching in, not just the classroom, but the historical context. If we're teaching in a, in a, in a historically underserved community, if we're teaching in a community of immigrants, if we're teaching in a community where people were imprisoned um, just because of where they were from, uh, you know, a few years before or a few months before. These things all have an impact, I think, on anyone in the community. Um, and of course, on people who are uh, learning in the community. So we, we often think about education as this kind of pure, um, you know, if you want to improve your life, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get an education. But we know that the people coming in for an education sometimes don't even have boots, so how is it possible that, that we can expect that as an outcome?
1: In Mitchell's keynote at OpenEd, she presented this by asking the audience to think about their quote-unquote tolerance for failure. I asked her to explain that a bit more again.
0: What I wanted to ask is, and, and by asking show, is that when we make decisions about what we're okay with um, in, in our society in our world in education, uh, we're fundamentally making ethical decisions. Um, and this is, this is sort of my thought growing from the seeds of the open movement and open education and the way it can break down barriers to access. And then what has followed for me because I've been sort of um, uh, always interested in the ethical questions is where do we stop and why do we stop there? And I think that my asking, what's our, what's our tolerance for failure was hopefully a wake up call that each of us is making decisions about where we are okay with failure happening. And that fundamentally those are ethical decisions and fundamentally those are decisions that create access or that, um, Limit access for real people, and so what I wanted people to do is think about where they're drawing the lines. You know, are they are they captioning their um, videos? Are they uh, putting multiple modes of the same content out there, so audio, not just text? video with interactive transcripts. We have the tools to be able to do these things now. What I wanted to ask people is where are you not doing these things and why? And Mm -hmm. I think it's largely because for me the first point of making some sustainable change to what we're doing is to acknowledge where we are and why we're there. So um, it's too easy to absolve ourselves of responsibility and say it's the policy of the institution or I don't have time or I don't have the money to do this. Those are all decisions that we make. So if we as an institution or as a content creator decide I don't have the time to do this, we're saying the time is a factor that limits me making access available to certain students, and I'm okay with that.
1: So what's the role of technology in all this? Big strides have been made in the last decade to certainly create more open digital materials. What's next on that end?
2: I think that years ago, the uh, energy and attention went largely to building out the technical and legal infrastructure for OER, Um, and there was less attention on the question or matter of its effective, thoughtful and effective use. I would say increasingly, there's still issues with regard to infrastructure, policy infrastructure, the technology required, the updating and expansion of the, uh, licenses and so forth and so on, and building awareness in the field of all of that. There's always going to be work to do there. But I, I'm, um, hopeful, optimistic even that, um, as we turn increasingly to what are some of the problems OER can help solve uh, that's new and that we are pushing through a period where we were playing defense, trying to fend off you know private companies and publishers. There'll be some of that always. I don't know if I'd call the technology a distraction. Uh, what I would say, I mean it's moving fast, it will continue to move, and we've no choice but to try to keep pace. With, what, with the affordances that technology, uh, technology brings. It is at the same time, I think, the easier of the curves to get out on. Um, so as you move from the technical to the social and cultural and political dimensions of this movement or of an effort um, to open things up pedagogically, that stuff feels both harder, more multifaceted, and more important to get at. Um, if we only get at the technical stuff, I worry about whether or not the divides and the variation and the stratification in access and outcomes to which I spoke this morning, um, don't actually get magnified. So it's, to me, this is a both and kind of a challenge, not an either or.
0: And I'm very optimistic. I I am an apologist, actually, even. I like to look at Technology and see what it allows us to do, and then yes, be critical of what it's not allowing us to do. But I don't think you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm. I think that there are great advances, no doubt. I think what we're lacking is, again, the conversation and the ability to have uh, the criticality towards something that comes in.
1: Mm-hmm. How do we all, all of these things that you've been mentioning, of course, are huge issues on campuses everywhere? but how do faculty or staff or administrators or students even begin to have conversations about issues around ableism, systemic racism, like all of these things that we're talking about, how do we begin to have conversations about that on campus and then begin to affect change?
0: I think you said it, Sydney, right? It's conversations. So this is what I'm sort of spending my time focusing on now is what does it look like to do something like what I've been calling open dialogue? So it's not to put a new process in place. It's not a new HR policy. It's not a new campus policy. Uh, Codes of conduct are helpful, but sometimes they even fall short of accomplishing what they, they aim to do. So I think it is about having these conversations and it's about things that, um, you know, I'm finding people are very uncomfortable having, but uh, they themselves are more reflections of what we see than of judgments. So I'll walk into a room, a classroom, and see that, you know, 80% of the faces are white. And, um, you know, saying that feels like it's risky. And when I do say something like that to sort of observe just as I would observe how the chairs are arranged. Um, it feels raw and it feels like it makes people uncomfortable. And I think that that's, that's the space, is how do we get through the discomfort and have these really tough conversations? And I think more and more, um, more, and more people are asking how to do this. Uh, not, not just from uh, the, the present political climate, but um, in all ways are asking, how do we have these tough conversations? And how do we have this impact? Like what you're talking about is really nice, but um, how do we actually do it? And I think that the first thing that we do is we acknowledge that this is not a new process. Um, it's a new mindset, not you know, 10 steps to achieving this on your campus. And in that new mindset, it is creating the space for open dialogue, where yes, it's safe to share ideas and thoughts, but it's challenging space too. And I think that we've gotten away from that. So I'm really spending some time um, putting some thoughts together about how we do that in a in a productive way that is also sustainable. I think that that's the other issue is sometimes we have diversity week or we have you know, a speaker who comes in and raises some of these things and then leaves. Um, I, I really think that we've got to build a capacity to have these conversations and continue having them. So this is not something that's going to start and stop. This is a practice. And um, I think that the only way that you have an impact is by continuing to do it.
1: McGuire shares some of that optimism around technology and the potential for open pedagogy. But he says if faculty are expected to address these big challenges in their work, they're going to need some support.
2: And we don't have institutional support in working on those things. That's going to slow things down. Um, New York State uh, uh, is actually working uh, you know, on those issues. What I think has emerged here is the kind of system or institutional policy environment that's actually uh, encouraging and supporting, open. And we'll need to see that spread uh, to other states and into other institutional uh, contexts, I think. Uh, I'm yet to find, uh, although I'm looking, for a teacher education program that is using OER as a part of how they think about uh, and help teachers think about who they are uh, and how they think about uh, content. Because um, it seems obvious to me that if the teachers and administrators are themselves Uh, enculturated in these ways, it will find its way into classrooms. Now, the systemic challenges there um, are twofold. The first has to do with whether or not teachers, as we know them in, let's say, secondary schools, have the authority and power and agency to manipulate anything. Um, They're much more accustomed to being handed the content and put in what we call scope and sequence kinds of uh, circumstances. The second thing has to do with whether our systems, uh, this is a procurement issue, uh, can see clear ways of acquiring open content, open pedagogy, you know, we have to, If the adults can do it, it's much more likely that the kids can too. So there are institutional and systemic rigidities all around, both in post-secondary and in elementary and secondary. Um, I like to say about them, though, uh, that humans created all of these barriers and rigidities, and humans could remove some of them if they had the will, a license, uh, the time and the support. These are all things the community knows require more attention, and these are things people want to talk about.
0: This episode of the EdSurge Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsearch.com and click on subscribe.
1: This has been the EdSearch On Air Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our newsletters. Come back next week for more on the future of education.